Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Rebecca Sofer, in for Sarah Ivry. Today, we're talking to TV writer, producer, comedian, and now Sundance-winning film director, Jill Soloway. Ever wonder what happens when a bougie 30-something housewife longing for passion invites a stripper to move in with her, her husband, their five-year-old son, and a fridge full of soy cheese pizza? Well, you're in luck, because this is the premise of Jill Soloway's debut feature film, Afternoon Delight. It's out August 30th and already made a splash at this year's Sundance Film Festival, where it won the directing award. Soloway also wrote the film. It also happens to be a very Jewish film, but more on that later. Before all this, Soloway had already made a name for herself as a writer and executive producer of Six Feet Under and other popular TV shows. Today, Soloway is speaking with us from a studio in L.A. about how the film came about, about building community professionally and personally, and about that never-ending search for intimacy. I should warn you that our conversation and various excerpts of the film that we're going to use contain explicit language. Jill Soloway, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the film. I've watched it twice now, and I really love it. Thank you. Thanks for watching it twice. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Um, So in a nutshell, Afternoon Delight is about an unsatisfied L.A. mom who decides she wants to rescue a stripper by inviting her to be a live-in nanny. Now, shockingly, this gets complicated. Let's listen to the moment in the film when Rachel, the wife played by Katherine Hahn, breaks the news to her husband, Jeff, Josh Radner. We have company. Go, 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 go. I'm listening. We have company. Who's here? Have you ever heard of uh, the espresso yourself truck? Nope. The coffee they make, Jeff, is like, you cannot believe. You know when people just make one thing right? I get it. It's great. It's obsession worthy. Okay. So I started started to follow the truck on Twitter. I thought you hated Twitter. I don't hate Twitter, (laughs) Jeff. I'm not. I just, I lurk on Twitter. You're a lurker. I'm just not a tweeter. Okay. So a few weeks ago, the the truck was parked right across the street from Sam's. Wait, let me get you. Let me get you some food. I bet you're wrong. Sam, who? A uh, Hofbrau. You know Sam's Hofbrau. That was the strip bar or like you know topless place or whatever that we went to. Oh, you need cutlery. Anyway, who would have thunk it? Ran into McKenna. I don't know who McKenna is. Oh, she. Um, She's the dancer. That she's the dancer that gave me that private thingy when we were there. You mean the stripper? Okay, sure. The stripper is in the maid's room. The stripper's in the maid's room. Yeah. How did the stripper get in the maid's room? I put her there. So, Jill, where did this plot line come from? Well, let's see. I think maybe around 10 years ago when people started going to strip clubs ironically, you know, when you could take your wife to a strip club or women could go along to a strip club, I went to one in Las Vegas. I was there with some friends and a mixed gender group of people went to a strip club and I got a lap dance. And um, I was struck by the feeling that the dancer was in love with me Hmm. and that, you know, she wanted me to rescue her. And that we had a special connection. And then somebody sort of explained, no, that's what they do. They're not just dancing. They're they're imitating intimacy. They're imitating 
feelings, the feelings of falling in love, the feelings of, I think they just go beyond lust, the feelings of connection, using their body as a tool, but also using, you know, using their selves, using their souls, using their eyes, using touch as a way to make the customer feel feel loved, I think, more than turned on. Or maybe mm-hmm. that was just my my woman's way of experiencing it, but um, I definitely left thinking about what it means to be a woman in that scenario. Getting a lap dance from a woman. What's the transaction? What's the agreement? Um, what do we owe each other? So suffice it to say, there was no stripper in your house at any time taking care of your kids. Not that I can think of, but I have had a soft spot for strippers, hookers, sex workers, um, bad girls, you know, all my life. I've definitely felt that as a writer, they, they're, uh, I wanted to tell their stories. I feel like sex workers um, or any kind of, you know, untoward girl, slutty, those those women always really get the short end of the stick in um conventional plots. Mm-hmm. And if a woman shows up in a movie and she's interested in anything other than getting the handsome prince husband or falling in love, if she's a hooker or a stripper or even, for example, in Fatal Attraction, just a sort of woman who, you know, wants sex, they usually end up either dead or causing a child to die. Mm-hmm. And I've off, I, for a long time, I've had the idea that I wanted to write something that where uh, this kind of a character got out of the film alive, that the, the sex worker, that the bad girl, the slut didn't need to get thrown under the bus to make the plot tidy up. So you have a powerhouse cast in this film. Juno Temple, Catherine Hahn, Michaela Watkins, Josh Radner, and of course, your longtime friend Jane Lynch as a shockingly incompetent therapist. Um, they're really hilarious people. They've been on everything from Girls to How I Met Your Mother to Glee and New Girl. Why did you decide to anchor the cast on such strong comedy people? Well, I was kind of developing and inventing the tone as we went. And somewhere along the way, in the in the casting process, um, I came up with this idea that I wanted to hire really, really, really funny people and ask them to play it straight. And I felt that, like, in that combo, people who weren't trying to figure out how to say a joke, but people who were inherently funny... Um, and then, you know, asking those people to go to a deep place where they were, mm-hmm. they were performing from a sense of humanness and a sense of realness, I thought that that's what, that would sort of add up to a, a tone that would work for me. Let's talk a little bit about Rachel's do-gooder impulse to save McKenna, the stripper played by Juno Temple. Rachel seems hell-bent on casting her as this, like, damsel in distress. Um, I'd like to play an exchange between Rachel and her friend about this. Okay, okay, she looks like a completely different person, right? She looks like a college kid or right? something. Right? Dancing is just her job. A job does not define who you are. True. I really think I can help her. She's had a really difficult life. Oh, lordy, oh, lordy, oh, lordy. Okay, all right, I'm shaking it out. There's a stripper in my pool. There's no bigs. No bigs. No bigs. No bigs. Okay. okay. Ooh, that's a nice looking design. Yeah, is that okay? What are strippers like? I don't know. Not that, because she's so... Oh, good for oh, her. Awesome. Good for her. So it's sort of like you took the movie Pretty Woman and exposed all the assumptions hiding underneath that whole rescue the whore fantasy. Can you talk a little bit about what you wanted to explore here? Well, um, you know, I mentioned before that I had met some 
strippers and sex workers. And one of the things they told me about was this notion of Captain Save-A-Hoe, um, <laughs> guys who come into strip clubs, not just to get a lap dance, but to be engaged in that sort of, you know, emotional transaction. I'm going to get you down off that pole. I'm going to rescue you. And there's, you know, something in that um, performance that the man is doing, that the customer is doing, that I think is sat- is satisfies the man. He uses the transaction of the dance and the money as a way to feel important, as a way to feel needed. And, you know, strippers are aware of that and are happy to sort of, you know, amp that up to um, increase generosity. So, yeah, I mean... Is Rachel me, like Ms. Captain Zavo then in this film? Yeah, it's just to me the sort of... Um, to transfer that onto a woman and enter into this notion of like the white savior industrial complex... It's always felt like a very obvious comic idea, a woman who thinks she needs to go save a stripper. The person she's really saving is herself. You know, when she gets that lap dance in the beginning, Rachel enters into this space with McKenna where she closes the curtain and they're alone together in this kind of airless, beautiful, pink, quiet space. Mm -hmm. And Rachel gets her lap dance. And in the script, it said, Rachel moves back and forth between feeling like mother feeling like sister, feeling like customer. She's turned on. She wants to take care of her, and she is also ashamed. You know, all of these things mixed in at once. And um, I, one of the things I told the actress, Catherine, was that um, Rachel has lost a part of herself. She's lost the sexual side of herself. Mm-hmm. So when she goes back to get McKenna, to rescue McKenna, she's actually rescuing her lost sexual self. I want to talk about something that you just mentioned, which is Rachel lost that sexual side of herself. Intimacy is a central theme in this movie. Rachel's on this desperate search for intimacy in her life, specifically in her marriage to Jeff. But while she wants to reconnect with this guy with whom she actually seems to have a really, really positive foundation, she's fearful, too. What makes intimacy so hard for her? Does it have to do with being upper middle class, being a woman, being a mother, being too cerebral? Well, I do think that the very simple sort of, you know, Madonna whore complex as as extrapolated into modern marriage is probably the first culprit. So Rachel used to have this monologue where she would say, you know, you fall in love. you, You meet a man who makes you feel like nobody else. He's like a magnet. You fuck all day. You get pregnant and you make a baby. Now your heart is beating outside of your body. The baby goes to school and you wake up in the middle of the night saying it's not enough. It's not enough. Anyway, it's a pretty overwrought monologue. (laughs) Rachel did a great job of it, but we eventually ended up cutting it because in some ways it was the scaffolding of the movie. It was, if it was, it's what held up the movie's story. This feeling that you're so attracted to somebody. All you want to do is make love all day. You make a person that turns you into somebody who is so anxious about protecting that person, who was created out of lust, but in many ways gets in the way of lust. Um, you know, this woman, Esther Perel, who, who has this um, series called Mating in Captivity, mm-hmm. talks about the sort of conundrum of marriage that we search and search and search for the feeling of safety in marriage. Safety in family, safety in relationship, but safety is like one of the least sexy things. What people really crave sexually is surprise or the unlikely or the element of danger. Um, None of those things are compatible with 
how safe it feels to have found, you know, your life partner. But yeah, um, so I think it's a really common problem. You know, particularly now, I think, I think pre-internet, there was this sort of, um, yeah, you get married, you have kids, you don't have sex as much as you want to. At this moment in history, we're actually challenged with this other thing besides sex, besides intimacy that satisfies, which is being online. Um, you know, not just the obvious for people who want like to watch, you know, internet porn and you can, it's so much more accessible. So you can actually have your needs met in, you know, 10 minutes sitting at your desk with nobody aware of it. That's kind of the obvious. But I think in the more, the bigger sort of spiritual way, the bigger soul way is that, um, you know, the internet and anxiety fit together, sort of like a lock and a key. The internet really relieves anxiety. You're sitting in this sort of driver's position. You're moving your finger back and forth on a mouse, on a mouse pad. Um, you're driving the experience, whether you're you're into porn or Pinterest. You're pleasing yourself. And that's an even bigger threat, I think, to intimacy between people than just simply having kids and being tired. Jewish identity plays a huge role in the film. A bunch of scenes actually take place at the Silver Lake JCC, the J. Um, the women secretly make fun of someone in their group they call Kosher Amanda, who they think is super religious because she lights the Shabbat candles. Why include all those details? Um, the Silver Lake JCC, we actually called it the East Side JCC in the movie, is where my kid goes to school. Um, and, you know, I was just like, we need a cheap place to shoot. I'm on the board there. I'm going to ask them if we can shoot there. And they said yes. So that kind of was almost a matter of convenience. Um, the, the stuff about kosher, I mean, Annie Mumolo played kosher Amanda, mm -hmm. and she was so amazing. Oh, she my God. She was amazing. So good. <laughs> And for our listeners, I, I don't know if they know, she co-wrote Bridesmaids. Yes, she did. So she's this kind of like much adored icon for women comedy writers. I mean, you know, I was so excited that she would consider the role. And when she came and read it, I just fell in love with her. She's just so funny. And so um, once she came to work and became part of these scenes and, and really provided so much comic relief... I started to write more for Kosher Amanda. And um, the the scene with the Sabbath candles was not in the original script. I had shot the scene in the garage. We're actually speaking about one of the final scenes in the film where Rachel and Jeff are sitting in the garage and coming to some sort of reconciliation. Right. And uh, within that scene, they light the Shabbat candles as a way to mark this time and say, we have to connect. We have to be together. Um, that little moment wasn't actually in the original script either. I mean, as you can probably tell from all of these things that evolved, I like to stay really open. Mm -hmm. I use the script as, um, as I call it, it's a map to tell the actors where to show up. But once I get there, everything's up for grabs and I'm just trying to be present for what's really happening with the actors. Same thing with the script. I take the sort of rewrite brain of being a TV writer and bring it to filmmaking. So I'm, I'm, forcing rewrites on myself every day. So we went to shoot that scene in the garage and there was no there was no Shabbat in it. It was just a scene about them making up. Um, and it felt really, it just felt really flat to me 
I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. And Josh and I went for a walk. You know, we did like four or five takes and it just wasn't, it wasn't bubbling up the way every other scene in the movie had. He went for a, a, we went for a walk and Josh said to me, what is wrong with this? What's wrong? I'm lost. You know, can you help me? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I wish I could help you. I don't know what's wrong with it. Sometimes it's like you have to change the writing. Sometimes you have to change the blocking. Sometimes you have to cut something. I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. And I couldn't figure out the note or the direction to give him to adjust his performance so that it would start to make sense. So we just kind of, we went a couple hours late. We never got it. And I just put, you know, put it on the books for, okay, this is going to be a reshoot. And I didn't know why or how or what. And then at some point halfway between, you know, there and, you know, we, we cut together the movie. So we were able to watch the whole thing and just, you know, felt really lucky to get the idea, um, that just kind of came to me, um, to that I would be able to do two things at once. One, I would be able to go rescue kosher Amanda. Mm -hmm. So as much as I had <laughs> talked to this notion, talked to you about this notion earlier about not wanting the stripper to get thrown under the bus, I think mm -hmm. I had created a film where the Jew got thrown under the bus. Definitely. And I, I think that a lot of people will be cheering that scene that you're referring yeah. to right now. So this thing where, you know, Kosher Amanda says, you know, everybody thinks I'm so religious. All I do is light the Sabbath candles. That to me was just, it was such a welcome idea because it allowed me to go back and, and, and get Kosher Amanda out from under the bus and rescue her before the movie ended. And then um, to allow that to inspire in Rachel a moment where she and Jeff would light the Shabbat candles together. Um, when I had the idea and I thought about Rachel covering her eyes to the light of the candles and how the covering of the eyes had this like beautiful relationship to this notion of the eyes open orgasm that's you know positioned throughout the mm -hmm. film do you look in your partner's eyes when you have sex you know um the scene when she goes to uh on the trick with mckenna where the guy says look at me look at me there's this constant sort of asking to be seen in this movie everybody's saying look me in the eyes or do you look in the you know you have to look in the eyes when you toast or it's not real there's this theme of eye contact and so for me to have like gotten this image of the Shabbat candles where the eyes are closed and the hands are covered to the mystery, which is the unknown is so much greater than the known. And the unknown is so beautiful, you actually have to close your eyes to feel it. I just like, I remember I was in the shower when I got the idea. And I just got this like whole feeling of like, oh my God, that's the ending of my movie. You know, it wouldn't have happened if the other scene hadn't gone so poorly. So you're well-known in L.A. hipster circles as a cultivator of Jewish community. I was listening to one of Mark Maron's podcasts with Carrie Brownstein, and he even mentioned you on his podcast as like the resident Jewess in the neighborhood. So it sounds like you're on a mission. Are you on a mission? That was really embarrassing. I love Carrie Brownstein. <laughs> and for me to be like held up as like the person who probably had been hassling her to, you know, come to a hipster seder. I was like, oh, my God. I was listening to that and as surprised as you were. Um, I'm, I guess I'm on a little bit of a mission. Um, but the creation of Jewish events, ritual, you know, exciting, interesting, crazy ways of reinterpreting holidays, It's it kind of like happens on its own. I like to tell people that it's easier for me to create Jewish events than to not create Jewish events. Like, I'll literally get, like, an email from somebody saying, 
I'm doing a one-man show about the Bible and, you know, um, the foodie movement. And then somebody will, you know, email me and go, I have a stage with a kitchen on it. <laughs> and, you know, it's easier for me to go, oh, you guys should meet each other than for me. I actually have to make an effort to stop <laughs> making Jewish events if I want. I actually have to, I would have to stop things from happening aggressively stop things from happening if I wanted to step out of my role as a Jewish organizer. And I just, I'm not in a position to do that just yet. So that sounds like your Jewish mission, even if the mission chose you. I kind of feel like you have this other mission that's choosing you in terms of being a role model to women in television and film. I think the one thing that uh, I really like to say about the movie and the experience of making it is that, you know, I really had to push myself to ask myself the question of what would it mean for me to punch above my weight creatively? I had had a certain amount of success as a TV writer, but um, the urge to direct really wasn't just, you know, I, I need to be a director. But it was more like I have, to, I have to be able to answer to all aspects of the creative process if I'm really going to be able to grow. And I had to get over a lot of the um, this barrier to being a director that felt like this thing that, like, only men could do or that mostly men could do. I had this notion that, you know, Steven Spielberg was a director, J.J. Abrams was a director, because when they were eight years old, they had used their Super 8 cameras to make films and edit films, and at 12, they knew they could do it. You know, I didn't know I could do it. I knew that I could produce. I knew that I could write. I knew that I could run a writer's room. I knew that I could organize events. Um, by bringing this sort of... I'd like to call it camp counselor aspect to this film where what I did was try to create this kind of space for actors to play. Um, one of the things I just like to tell sort of, you know, young women who feel like uh, I can't I can't get to that directing place because it's so hard or it's for men or it's for people who are really ambitious. For me to come into my place as a director really was about like relaxing into something that is a very feminine power, which is allowing, creating, um, which is in some ways I tell some young women, you know, directing a movie doesn't have to be, you know, being in a helicopter with a baseball cap on, you know, shooting explosions. Directing a movie can feel like throwing a dinner party. It can feel like putting on a bat mitzvah. It can feel like the things that you know as a woman you're really good at, but you don't think of as directing. For me, directing was about creating community and creating a space for people to play. And um, I just, you know, encourage more women to push themselves to fight above their weight, to go further and farther into their dream of what they can be and to know that they have everything within them to do it, that you don't have to learn how to direct. You just have to be comfortable with what you already know how to do. Jill Soloway, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. I can't wait to uh, share this with my Jewish friends and my friends who love Jews. <laughs> Jill Soloway is a Los Angeles-based writer, director, and producer. Her debut film, Afternoon Delight, opens in theaters in L.A. and New York, August 30th. For more information, come to tabletmag.com. While you're there, we'd love you to post a comment and tell us what you thought of today's podcast. Fox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Rebecca Sofer. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>